Psalm 19, verses 41 through 48. This is the Hebrew letter Vav, or Wow, depending if you're classical or modern Hebrew. And each of these stanzas begin with the letter Vav in the Hebrew. May thy loving kindness also come to me, O Lord, thy salvation according to thy word. So I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in thy word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for thine ordinances. So I will keep thy law continually, forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will also speak of thy testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. And I shall delight in thy commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to thy commandments, or to, yeah, to thy commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on thy statutes. Through the example of the psalmist, we're learning that God's word applies to everything in life. And it is involved in everything in life. That's the point of an acrostic psalm or acrostic proverb. It's to show every, that God's word is everything to us. And here it's the basis of joy. It's, it's, uh, it's the basis of our freedom. And thus it ends with, I will meditate. Brothers and sisters, let us, let us come now to fellowship with our God by meditating upon his word together. Towards that end, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament, so it's easy to find. Second book back from Matthew. So if you would, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. Also, when your bulletin is an outline, I encourage you to use that. Follow along as we use that this morning as we study this, as we embark upon this incredible journey through Zechariah. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, which is the uh, um, beginning of this incredible uh, prophecy. This is the word of Almighty God. Let me invite you to stand together with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word. For the Lord as we read God's word. Hear now the word of our, our king. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live uh, forever? But did not my words and my statutes, was I a command of my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with your ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. As Father, reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word together. Coming before you now, knowing that this is a high and holy moment in any life of a congregation in worship. For Lord, not only is this the um, ultimate day, but Lord, this is a moment where we spend time fellowshipping with you in this, this worship service. Bless this time now as we fellowship in your word. Grant us unction and power to fellowship and learn and grow and, 
Holy Spirit, give us a heart of responsiveness to your word that we might live and move and have our beings in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In 1941, the poem that's in your outline was um, published in the uh, Nazi-run Paris um, Soir newspaper during the occupation, the German occupation of France, Paris. And this is what it read. We adore and admire Chancellor Hitler. The eternal English land is unworthy of life. We curse, we crush the people beyond the sea. On earth, the Nazi alone will survive. Support then the German Fuhrer. The youthful sailors will finish the Odyssey. To them alone belongs a just punishment. The palm of the victor awaits the swastika. Now there's much more to this poem, as you can obviously see. I wish I had not my notes, but just an overhead here that you could, I could hold back that second part from you. The author of this was no fan of Germany, no fan of Hitler. He was a, a French man who resented German occupation. And so he wrote this poem, which actually is two poems. And if you have eyes to see, you'll be incredibly encouraged. You can imagine how, encouragement, how, how encouraging it would have been to read this in a Nazi-run newspaper. Because the two poems read as, as follows. Okay, you can see where he cut it. We adore and admire the eternal English land. We just entered the war at this point. We curse, we crush on earth the Nazi. Support then the youthful sailors. To them alone belongs the palm of victory. Chancellor Hitler is unworthy of life. The people beyond the sea alone will survive. The German Fuhrer will finish the Odyssey. A just punishment awaits the swastika. Incredible, isn't it? And yet, the setting, the German occupation of Paris, and the content of this psalm, or psalm, this uh, uh, poem, is paralleled by Zechariah. Zechariah, like this poem, was, was written at a time when God's people were living in darkness. They were exiled, brothers and sisters. And one thing you've got to realize, that that 500-year span where God's people were a theocracy, formal as a nation, under, from beginning with Saul all the way to the end, that was an aberration. God's people prior to that were, were, were aliens and strangers in the promised land. And after that, from 586 on, God's people, even in the promised land, were strangers and aliens. They had entered into, back into, the dark time of this world. This world of sin and misery and suffering and sickness and death. And when they came back, for the purpose, the sole purpose of, of, of rebuilding the city, of reestablishing the worship of God. You and I know the context based upon Haggai. They came to a city that was far worse than they could have ever imagined, to a temple that was in far greater disrepair than they could have imagined. And, after, and they came to a place where they were now persecuted. Before that, they had the entire support of the Persian nation behind them, they enter into Palestine and the local people began attacking them and accusing them and rejecting them and threatening them. And so they withdrew. And for 18 
probably 17 likely, 17 years they focused on their own houses. And so God sent a famine on the land, a drought. And the sole purpose of that drought for 17 years was to reflect the hearts of God's people. They had come back with zeal and passion and then they fell because of fear, the fear of man. They fell into despair and so the land reflected the hearts of God's people and get this brothers and sisters, it has always been that way ever since. So God sent Haggai and while God's people participated in what we would call a revival, Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, that revival didn't mean that the ease would return. That the peace that they enjoyed for the 500 years, so to speak, living in Jerusalem, would come back to them. No, darkness would still prevail. They would still live in a land of difficulty and struggle as aliens and strangers. And so God raised up a second prophet as well, Zechariah. His prophecy would be the most difficult prophecy of all the 16 prophets that we've looked at. And yet, that would only be on the surface. When you look at Zechariah for the first time, you realize the thing is filled with mystery. It's filled with with strange and bizarre statements on every chapter, in every chapter. It, It doesn't get easier as you go on, as you read it for the first time. You read it and you go on chapter after chapter going, what in the world is going on here? But then you just get a little bit deeper. One of the reasons that we'll say in a little bit here, Zechariah is so difficult because Zechariah, in out of all of his uh, writings, of all of the prophets, quotes the rest of scripture most, um, mo- uh, uh, the most. So a lot of the passages that you're reading that don't make sense, they're quotations. And that's why they don't make sense. They seem out of place because there are other parts of Scripture that he's quoting. Zechariah, as we'll see, is the, is the epitome of a, of a biblical writer as he writes God's Word, quoting so much of it. And so the more you read and study this book, the more you realize that the message of Zechariah, the overarching message is a message of a very simple statement. Brothers and sisters, this land is dark. This land is hard. But God has overcome the, heart, the darkness and the difficulty in Messiah. That's the book of Zechariah. And that is why, of all the prophets, Zechariah was the most favorite prophet during the Reformation. Luther um, wrote two different commentaries on Zechariah, one in Latin, one in German. Calvin said, of all the the prophets, Zechariah was most applicable to the age in which he lived. This has always been the favorite book of God's people in dire and difficult situations. Isn't that crazy? This book, which from the surface looks so complicated, and yet, when you dive into it and start to understand it, it becomes the solace of your soul. This morning, what I, my desire is simply to introduce you to this book. We're not going to get very deeply into any of, of the portions of Zechariah, but let me at least introduce you to it. And then in the coming weeks, we'll dive in, hopefully. First, let's talk about the background, the prophet, context, date, and setting of this book. We start in verse 1. In the eighth month, note the language, 
The second year of Darius, you should be well aware of that language, well uh, familiar uh, with it. The word of the Lord came to uh, uh, Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying. I've got a chart in my notes there, and you can see the dating relationship between Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai, we already read this language with Haggai multiple times. And this place is therefore Zechariah in between um, the visions that Haggai had. Remember, he had the four visions. And his, this one comes probably somewhere in the mid-October to November range. We don't know the exact date because he doesn't give us the day in which this prophecy came. So we have to therefore speculate or guess based upon what we already know. And therefore it would be somewhere in October to November this prophecy came to Zechariah. And yet, brothers and sisters, you will recall the background of Zechariah. Let me review it with you. It's the same as Haggai. Zechariah, or better yet, was written in 520. We know that. November, October, November. But that was after God's people were sent into exile in 586 B.C. So I'm going to start there. 586, God's people, you know, for the last time, the southern kingdom, three exiles, the third one, 586, God's people go into exile, into Babylon. But God gave a promise through Jeremiah, the, that, 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 which tells us that the story, God's work, his redemptive work was not over. Because God told Jeremiah in 70 years from 605, God's people would be back in Palestine. And so 70 years came, 538 B.C., and uh, God does an amazing work by, by putting Cyrus, 539, in charge of the Babylonian Empire. In fact, he's a Persian and he conquered Babylon. But he didn't do it in a typical fashion. This is background you don't know. So towards the end of the Babylonian regency, the reign, um, the last king, Nabonidus, was, many scholars today believe he was sick. He was mentally ill. Well, he moved... Sort of like Tiberius, if you know anything about the 12 Caesars. When Tiberius reigned as Caesar, he moved the, the, his capital from Rome to um, uh, Capri. And there he ruled Rome from uh, Capri. Well, that caused a lot of problems with the leadership. That's exactly what happened here. Nabonidus transferred the capital city, if you will, from Babylon to Tema. Which was, if you, if you, if you, I wish I put it in here, the, the um, map. It is way, way west, across the Arabian Desert, um, just on the east side of the Persian Gulf. So he went way over there, and there he, it was this oasis. That you can see pictures of it today. It's beautiful. It's this oasis in the desert. He made that his capital city. He built this incredible shrine to his mother's god. And then he then moved all of the gods of Babylon to Tema. Now, brothers and sisters, that may mean nothing to you and me. But to the Babylonians, they couldn't worship their god. He's in Tema. If you want to worship your god, say you worship this god or the sun god or the rat god or whatever god that you worship, you've got to go to Tema to offer sacrifices because that's where uh, Nabonidus brought everyone, everything. So the entire kingdom of Babylon towards the very end was ready to implode. So when Cyrus rose up, he didn't didn't take over by force. Very little blood was shed. Rather, he came in as a liberator. 
And all the Babylonians loved him. And the first thing he did as a very wise and shrewd leader was he, he, he postured himself as a religious liberator. And so he purposely restored all of the gods to their proper places and supported all of the various people groups in their worship. Such that in 538, he came to the Jews and said, here's all of the utensils that were taken. Here's a bunch of money. Go rebuild your temple. Move back home. Prosper. And you know what? It had the intended effect. He was the most uh, widely loved, incredible leader you could imagine. So 538, God's people come back to Jerusalem. And you know how they entered. They entered, were shocked, had the conflict. They stopped working. Then in 520, God sent Haggai to begin ministering. And, uh, um, but yet that the, the revival didn't, um, what was, 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 was going well. Um, but then God sent Zechariah. And we'll, and we'll talk about why in one moment. He then sent Zechariah as well, same time, to his people to minister in the context. You've got a quote there from George Klein. I'm not going to read it because I'm past that now in my notes. I skipped it. But you can read that, and and it describes what Cyrus did when he became king. That brings us then to Zechariah the man. Let's talk about this guy. First of all, we know in verse 1, he's the son of um, Berechiah. He's also the son or the grandson of of Edu. Now, we know very little, in fact, nothing about Berechiah, which tells most scholars that Berechiah probably died when Zechariah was a young man or a, a boy. But we know about his grandfather, Edu. He was mentioned in, in Nehemiah 12.4 as one of the priests who came in 538 with Zerubbabel and Joshua. We also uh, read in, in the same chapter, Nehemiah 12, 16, that Zechariah was serving as a priest. He was of a priestly family. He was serving also as a priest under the high priest of Joachim. Now, Joachim, it's hard to date when he reigned but, or ruled, but it is believed that he ruled in 440 B.C., which would mean Zechariah was in his, in his 80s or 90s. In um, Nehemiah 12 16, which puts 520, when Zechariah began ministering as a prophet, he received his call, he would have been a young man. In fact, we read in Zechariah 2 4, if you want to just look at it, it's probably open in your page. Um, Zechariah is known as a young man, he's described as a young man. So Haggai is an older guy. He's at the end of his life. Zechariah, he was part of the young children who were uh, part of the, the uh, um, thousands, the 40,360 Jews who came back in 438. He would have been one of the lad, young lads who came in, four, in, in, in uh, 538. By 520, he would have been a young man when God called him, and he would serve as a priest and a prophet for the next 80 years of his life. Um, in terms of his ministry as a prophet and priest, again, he served from 520 to 440. As um, both uh, he and Haggai overlapped, we understand Haggai, if you think of the two prophets at the same time, Haggai's pro- uh, prophetic ministry was the skeleton of the revival. It's the, the uh, bones. Zechariah fleshed it out. This book fleshes it it out. Uh, Joyce Baldwin wrote these words. There's a marked contrast between Haggai and his uh, contemporary Zechariah. If Haggai was the builder responsible for the solid structure of the new temple, think of 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 the bones of the body, Zechariah was more like the artist 
adding colorful windows with, the, with their symbolism, gaiety, and light. Okay, that's Zechariah. His death, we know about how, how he died. Um, d- definitively, Matthew 22, th- uh, 35, while uh, condemning the, the unrighteous Jewish leaders of his day, this is what Jesus Christ said. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Amazing. I think a perfect end to a ministry which told people that your hope in a dark land is God. Zechariah would be executed by the darkened people of God between the altar um, and uh, the temple in around 440 B.C., which tells us, just as a footnote, Malachi writes in 444. So Malachi would have probably known Zechariah and been aware of the execution or the assassination of this uh, prophet. In terms of the book itself, the outline, you've got an outline there in front of you. It's rather simple. It's a hard book, but a simple outline. The introduction, 1, 1 through 6, a series of eight visions, chapters 1 through 6. Then two sermons, Zechariah 7 through 8, eight or sermons. And then lastly, an eschatological section, 9 through 14, divided neatly in two different sections, 9 through 11, 12 through uh, 14, taken uh, together. All of it um, uh, prepares God's people to live in a world where evil oftentimes triumphs over good. Baldwin once again wrote, There's no room in Zechariah's thinking for glib optimism. But when evil has done its worst, the Lord remains king and will be seen to be king by all the nations. That's the message of this prophecy overall. And that is, um, that no doubt is why of all the prophets, this prophecy is the favorite amongst persecuted people living in a dark land. Um, his name means Yahweh remembers. Zakar, I've talked about this during the Lord's Supper. Zakar is the Hebrew word for remember. Awe means God. Zechariah is the Lord remembers. The idea is he remembers his uh, covenant. And what a fitting name. For this prophet, as he ministers to people in dark, difficult times, God will always remember his his, uh, covenant, which means he'll always remember you, his people. Incredible. Um, Lastly, this book is a literary uh, genius. It's brilliant. Um, I'm going to just read my, my notes rather than try to recite them. The book of Zechariah is a prophetic masterpiece, rightly steeped in allusions and many uh, quotations of the pre-exilic prophets. Among them, this book is saturated with Habakkuk, Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I've got a, um, a commentary at home that gives a list of all of the different um, passages in Scripture that Zechariah quotes from. And I, I wish I could give it to you here. There's just not enough room. Um, but it's just vast. Um, and you see it here as he quotes from the uh, prophets. In fact, this book is sometimes referred to as Little Isaiah, since it has more to say about the Messianic shepherd king than any other Old Testament prophetic book besides Isaiah. That being said, of all the Old Testament books, Zechariah is the most Messianic, talks about Christ the most, as well as apocalyptic. The book 
is filled with visions, prophecies, if you've read it, signs, uh, celestial visitors, symbolism, and more, making it by far the most difficult of the prophetic discourse to understand. And yet, Zechariah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the Passion uh, narratives. So you read the Gospels, you're going to get the most quotations from the Gospel narratives from Zechariah than any other Old uh, Testament book. And next to Ezekiel, Zechariah has had the greatest impact upon John's um, book, which we call uh, the Revelation. So this book influenced, clearly influenced the writing of the book of Revelation. Beyond all this, it is a literary masterpiece. The entire book of Zechariah is a series of chiasms. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that. But the entire book is, again, uh, chiastic. And so talk about a literary genius. When you read this, you wouldn't necessarily see it as you read it. But you, boy, the, when you step back and examine it, the entire book has been written as these series of chiasms. Incredible. All right, that brings us then to the theme, to one of many themes, but I'm going to give you one of the main themes. So turn your paper over, and now let's dive into Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. Zechariah 1, 1 through 6 uh, constitutes one of the main themes. It's the uh, um, uh, launching for this entire uh, prophecy. Therefore, it has a large uh, shadow. It casts a large shadow upon everything that is written here. Everything you read in this book, everything you read, should be read through the lens of 1, 1 through 6. Okay, that's its intention. So notice with me, let's begin with the historical background that Zechariah gives us from this book. Zechariah 1, 1 through 2. Once again, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying, the Lord was angry with your father. So he begins by talking about the pre-exilic people of God. So people before 605. God's people from 1051, which is Saul, all the way down to 605, Zechariah says, God was angry with your your, uh, fathers. And the reason why is because the nation dove into sin. And the reason they dove into sin was because of what what is now known as the pre-exilic doctrine of the inviolability of Zion. So I don't know if I have that down. The inviolability of of Zion. It was a massive doctrine before the, the fall. And the inviolability of, of Zion was a misunderstood concept of Scripture, which believed, which they believed that as long as the temple was there, as long as Jerusalem, the city, was there, stayed, stayed strong, then the nation could not be toppled. In other words, there's no way you can be that, that as long as that temple's there, that Jerusalem could be conquered. None. And because of that, God's people, in essence, had this, had this unconditional ticket that no matter what they did, no matter how they lived, the nation would never go out of existence. Now, they misunderstood. They completely missed um, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Jeremiah 25, etc., etc., which said that is a theocracy if they rebelled against God enough He'd wipe them off the face of the earth for good. Read the text, Deuteronomy 25, Leviticus 26. He'd wipe them off for good, the theocracy. They missed that. 
And so they, un, un, without any restraint, unrestrained, sinned away and sinned away. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, whom they all killed and, a few, and, and opposed. Jeremiah, at one point, 7.4, attacks this doctrine. Jeremiah says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple. This is the temple. This is of the temple. He says it three times. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Don't, you know, stop saying that. Because what was happening was, is they'd sin. Something bad would happen. And they'd say, hey, as long as this temple's there, we don't have to fear. They sinned. Something bad ha- happened. Hey, the Assyrians may be strong, but as long as this temple's here, we're covered, baby. We don't have to worry. We've got the temple. So it's sort of how God's people looked at the ark. Do you remember when they were um, way, way back before Saul became king? How they viewed the ark as this talisman, as this lucky charm. That as long as they had that ark, man, no kingdom or no, no army going into battle with the ark at its head could ever lose. Says, who is it, Spielberg, right? Um, well, they, in essence, that's what they were saying about uh, the temple. We can't lose. And so they were arrogant, they were rebellious, they forgot God, they did what they wanted. And so God says in verse 1 and 2, Man, I rebuked um, your fathers, I was very angry with them. Now, brothers and sisters, God's people know this, hearing this uh, prophecy, because they are the result of the failed understanding of the doctrine of the inviolability of Zion. In fact, let me give you a footnote on that one. The inviolability of, of, of Zion is a glorious doctrine in Scripture. But it's not talking about a physical city. It's talking about the people of God. God's people cannot be, will not be wiped out. God will always have his refuge, always have his people. And we, his people, will always endure. And we will endure to the point where someday God's going to um, come back and on and on and on and on. That's the inviolability of Zion. But they took it to be the physical city. All right, that then leads us then to his first exhortation. Based upon that fact, you, you are proof positive that your fathers had it wrong. God was angry with your fathers, and you, you and I are bearing the consequence. Notice verse 3. Therefore, in light of that, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts. I love this. God does not say return to the covenant. Return to my word. Re- return to worship. Return to doing it this way. Return to all these religious activities. What does God say here? Return to me. That's the heart and soul of, of the, the covenant, brothers and sisters. It's a love relationship with God, which is fostered and furthered by the word of God and worship and all these different things. But if you take those things outside of that, you are now just legalistic, formalistic, religious. Without God, you've got a form of godliness, but denying its power, the power of godliness is God himself. Return to me. And I will return to you. If you come to me in fellowship with me, if, if you enjoy me, then you will once again enjoy the blessings and the glory of a love relationship that, uh, with, with God. Return to, uh, unto me, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, there's no question that the pre-exilic Jews got it wrong. Clearly, in God's people, that generation were the results. And therefore, God came to his people and said... This is the key word I want you to live. Brothers and sisters, this is the key message God gives to you and I living in in a land of darkness. And that message is repent. Repent. The word in the Hebrew 
is shuv. And in the Hebrew, it does mean a 180-degree turn. That word shuv in the Hebrew means you're going in this direction. To shuv is to turn 180 degrees to another way. Okay, that's where we get the idea of repentance is a 180 degree term. However, theologically, let's step back from this. What is repentance theologically? Now you come to the New Testament, read the word metanoia, which is a change of mind. Do you remember last week what we talked about, the, the fallen disposition of man? Review that with me real quickly. Fallen disposition of man is uh, comprised of four uh, uh, facets from Genesis 3, right? He has a default uh, program. He wants to relate to God on the basis of our deeds. That's not from the fall. That's from uh, creation. But since the fall, we still are born with this passion to relate to God on the basis of our conduct. We want to save ourselves. Secondly, we have a default passion, and that default passion is to sit in judgment over God. Is to say, God, his word, what he does can be under me and I can judge God. Thirdly, we talked about our default uh, presumption, that is that God is not good. When we look at God and we see what this world's like and the darkness uh, therein, we conclude in our sinfulness and our arrogance, therefore God must not be good. We judge God based upon the consequences of our sin. We sinned, we destroyed this this world, and then we look at the fallen world and go, God must not be good. Talk about arrogance. And that leads then to a default pleasure, and our default pleasure is not participating in 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 the creation pleasure of loving, knowing, adoring, serving, and fellowshipping with God. Our default pleasure is doing what our fleshly desire wants. All four of those things constitutes our fallen disposition. And if you were to summarize our fallen disposition with one word, you know what that word would be? Autonomy. Autonomy. You and I are bent on autonomy. We decide what's best for us, not God's word. We decide what we're going to do, how we're going to be, what we're going to, you know, what's worth all of it. It's autonomy. God doesn't tell me. No one tells me. I do what I want, when I want, where I want. Autonomy. That is the circle from which we then derive our default passion, program, uh, pleasure, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, brothers and sisters, repentance has in mind turning from autonomy back to God. Being subject to God's reign and rule without question presuming what God's word says about God, that he is sovereign, but he's good and loving and gracious. We no longer judge God by feeble sense. We allow God's word to dictate how we view God. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing more important for you and I to see that that movement from autonomy to trusting God, to living in light of God, is what is the main thing needed in dark times. Because in dark times, what do we do? We make much of our struggles. I mean, if you, if, you, if you need me to put it on a poster, we'll do it. Let's look at the past year. What have you and I been consumed with in these dark days? Have we been consumed with God? And the work he's doing right now in the world? No, we've been consumed with COVID and masks and laws and rules and all the stuff. That has been just, uh, what's the word, caking us down in our walks. 
overwhelmed, unduly overwhelmed by the pressures and the heaviness of what's going on in this dark world in which we live. And that's the case when you get sick. That's the case when you lose a job. That's the case when you have difficult conflicts in your relationships. We get overwhelmed by what? Us. It's all about me. That's why I get upset at life. Brothers and sisters, I read a quote uh, recently. You never upset that about things that don't touch you, that don't burden you. So I can read back about the exiles. I can read about church history and, or history and read about horrible things and, and read them and be unmoved. I can read them um, eating uh, breakfast scones and coffee, um, right? And it doesn't bother me. I'm reading about this massacre because it doesn't involve me. But the moment you're involved, you... Your, your autonomous self is involved. That's when your entire world gets turned upside down when someone steps on your pinky toe. Right? That's why God's message to those in darkness is turn from autonomy. Turn from self-trust. Turn from putting yourself first. Trust me. In fact, if you were to summarize this entire message, you could summarize verses 1 through 6, the message of 1 through 6, Luke 9, 23 through 24. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the message. That's why this passage, this book was so precious to people going through the Reformation. The world is falling around us. What is going to happen next? But this I do know. I'm turning from worrying about my rights, my needs, my desires, my sense of well-being to a God who has promised in this book to overcome the darkness in Christ. Wow. My glory, my victory, my joy is Jesus Christ. That's the message of Zechariah. And that, uh, thus, brothers and sisters... The primary message of this uh, prophecy, it's a word used 16 times throughout this prophecy. Repent, repent, turn. Accordingly, God's word to his people in Zechariah was for them to understand that this world, as well as their redemption, is not about them. Their duty, their wants, their needs. It's about God and his desire to have and enjoy a relationship with man. Let me say that again. It's about God and his desire to have and hold a relationship with you. That, brothers and sisters, is what Zechariah's message is all about. Now, they, why is Zechariah therefore written? Why do we need it when we have Haggai? Because, brothers and sisters, Haggai is just about ready to be done. There's one more uh, um, oracle that he was going to get from the Lord, which occurred in December to January after this. And it would be the very thing that would prompt God's people to have a revival. Do you remember that? Remember the last part of Haggai? God's people enjoy this incredible revival. And they built, and that's when they got got, got busy working on that temple, which in four years would be finished. They have a dedication ceremony and, and glorious. But you know what the risk is at this point? This is huge. The risk is, is that all of that revival It's just about religiosity. That's why Zechariah's here. Now, how many revivals can you think of in Scripture where in the midst of the revival, God sent a prophet to rebuke his people? I can think of many. I'll give you one. There was another revival, not Josiah's revival, in the days of 
um, Jehoiakim. And people were flocking to the temple doors. Flocking. They were engaged in the worship and the sacrifices and the celebration of God and his glory and the fact that Jerusalem would be, would always stand. We're inviolable. They're because of this temple. They were, it was this glorious time. And God sent Jeremiah to stand at the temple doors and this is what he said. He, he yells us out to the worshiping people of God. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. It was a revival. And God sends Jeremiah uh, to say, it's not a revival. Church history, or redemptive history, Josiah's revival. And if, if you remember our, our study there, Mass revival in Josiah when they found Deuteronomy and, and they rebuilt the temple. And all, I mean, it was great. But we found the moment he died, the revival was done. That revival was, was, was led and governed by a very small group of people who loved God. But the rest of the people were participating. They were long for the ride. Oh, they did it. They worshipped. They were there. They were doing all of the right religious stuff. But their heart was far from God. And that's exactly God's message in Zechariah. Joel 2 is the same one. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with your fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. That's always been the message. And that's the message of Zechariah. You're in this glorious revival. Man, you're in the word of God again. You're having quiet times again, Christian, for the first time in two or three years. That's great. And you're once again leading family devotions, man. That's fantastic. Keep it up. And you're now coming. You haven't missed church for how many times? And you're actually preparing and, 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 and engaging. All of that's great. But if all of that in your fallen humanness is just a means by way you are picking yourself up by your bootstraps, if all of that is the expression of your autonomy before God, where this is all about me and me feeling good about me, if that's what your Christianity is, turn, repent, turn from your autonomy to God and seek the face of God. Seek Him, as it says here. Seek, turn to me, says God. That's the message of this glorious passage. Now, how relevant is this? Notice with me verses 4 through 6. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets, circle those in your mind, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. So he rehearses that history for a purpose. So stop there. Don't be like them. Don't be like your fathers, whom the prophets prophesied to. And then he pauses for effect, you can imagine. And then he says, your fathers, where are they? The prophets, they still alive? Do you see what his point is? All the things that burdened your fathers, all the things that are burdening you, they're gone. Even the message of the prophets, the prophets themselves, 
laying awake at night in bed, burdened by the, the people. Gone. All those burdens are gone. They're dead. They're, they're gone. All that is past history. But you know what's not God? It's my word. The truth of my word. And that's where he ends. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? If we were to summarize that little verse, it would be 1 Peter 1. Peter quoting from Isaiah, All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass, which means all its concerns and burdens. Everything that you've been burdened with this last year, everything you've been burdened with, how much of that is going to translate to eternity? The sleepless nights, all the articles you've read, all the arguments, discussions you've had, all the conflict. That's why when we went into this COVID as a session, we were praying, Lord, give us the grace that this would not divide this body. Let's not divide over COVID. It's stupid. I tell you, in three or four years, this will be a distant memory. But the division, that'll hold. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. That's the message of Zechariah. Turn, because this is the word that's preached to you. This is the word, this is a message that transcends all of the difficulties of your, of your life, which is applicable in and through all things. Man, all the concerns you've got right now are going to be gone when you die. But the word of God won't, and your response to the word of God won't, that'll translate into glory. So if you and I are going are to focus today on anything, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God with regards to COVID and your job and your health and your future and what's going to happen next. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, which is God's word, belong to us and our children forever. That's the message of Zechariah. Brothers and sisters, and that message is turn from self. Turn from your wants, your desires, your burdens. Turn from all the things that are driving you right now, unless it's God. And be driven once again. Come back to God and be driven once again by God, his glory, what he values. Because I'll tell you what, you may lose your life on a scaffold. You may lose your life with your head being chopped off. You may be burnt. I'm thinking of the Reformation. But you know what? They cannot stop. They cannot stop Christ. They cannot stop God. They cannot stop Zion. They cannot stop God coming back to this world, overwhelming this darkness, destroying it, and establishing his glorious kingdom, of which you and I are a part today, this very moment. So rejoice. Be filled with joy. God has overcome and overwhelmed this darkness in Christ. Turn from self. Go to God. That's the message. And so he ends with this, the appropriate response. They repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt. Get this. Their closing words were this. They turned from self. And all the things that might have held them back, like all of the horrible, bitter things that occurred in our lifetime. Why, God, they gave it up. He said, no, brothers and sisters, that happened because we, 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 in our sin, deserve it. In other words, they turned 
back to God professing the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the greatness of God. And the only way you can do that this day in this moment in your life right now is if you turn from autonomy. Did you hear that? You think of repentance in terms of a sin. Turn from autonomy. What's behind? It's the sin behind every sin. Turn from that and you will be able to say to God, Lord, bring the scaffold. Bring the pyre. Take my life. Let it be. Destroy it. I don't care. Right? The goods and kindreds go. This mortal life, all soul, the body they may kill. His word abides still. Lord, I'm staking my life on that word. On you. I want you. Boys close with these words. Zechariah is going to unfold many rich and comforting promises, both in the first and also the second sections of this prophecy. But riches like these are for people who have repented of sin and are ready to embrace the will and declarations of God. Repented of self and are ready to embrace God. For this reason, the book opens with a message calling on the people to return to God and not to be as their forefathers who refused uh, to listen. May God give us the grace to turn. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to look at this incredible book at this dark time in history, not near as dark as the Reformation we know in other parts of your, your story. But Lord, it's dark to us. And in our darkness, we can confess every one of us being uh, sidetracked and absorbed and consumed by so many tertiary, at best, tertiary things, things that don't matter, things that in five years we won't even be talking about. But the one thing that we can talk about today that will have an impact upon our, our lives is you, your word, your Christ, your kingdom, what you're doing. Grant us the grace of the Lord to, to be a people likewise who would repent. That that repentance would begin with us and it would spread and grow to our families and to the world in which we live. That, Lord, we would once again come to you. With John, we'd we'd sit in your lap and place our head upon your chest in your word. We'd gaze into those eyes of grace. And we'd say, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.